You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 128, covering the week of July 2nd through July 6, 2018. Very glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Before we get started, all the usual things. You can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. You can like us on Facebook at Abbeville Institute. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville I-N-S-T. If you don't want to go out and find all those things, you can go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll find all of our social media buttons. Just click on those. Take you right to those accounts. You'll also see our Amazon Smile button if you shop at Amazon. You can make the Abbeville Institute your preferred charity. So while you shop there, you can still give us a few pennies. Also, while you're at the abbevilleinstitute.org, or it's actually abbevilleinstitute.org, you can give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook or Patrick Sales Emancipation Hell, and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday, along with our weekly email Saturday or Sunday with a link to this podcast. Also, remember that we exist on your generous contributions alone. If you do like what we do, if you like this podcast, if you like our website, which now has well over a thousand articles. It's a free online resource. Everything we do is free online. If you like that and you want to help us continue to do those things, you can give us a tax-deductible contribution to the full extent of the law. Just go to abbevilleinstitute.org forward slash, uh, I'm sorry, go to the top of the page where it has the uh, drop-down menu, and you'll see an option that says uh, support and then donors or donor options. We have a new donor interface. You can click on that. You can donate monthly as little as $3 a month if you're a student or $5 a month if you're not a student. Or you can donate annually, $25 or $50 a year. But we have other options as well. So that would help us keep everything we do going, our, our programs, our summer school. So your support is essential for the Abbeville Institute to continue to exist. And uh, don't forget, we do have our summer school coming up. If uh, I'm not certain if we've got every slot sold. Uh, but we did have four slots as of about a week ago left. We also have our concert, which is on Wednesday night, the 18th. If you're interested in going to that, just the uh, Bobby Horton show, you can do that. It's $70 for a ticket. You get your meal and, of course, the concert as well. You can contact Dr. Livingston on that. All the information is available on the website. Uh, it's in the middle of the page where it says uh, you're invited. So click on that and uh, just contact Dr. Livingston if you want to attend just the Bobby Horton banquet performance. It also helps uh, fund scholarships for the students who are going. So we do have some tickets available for that too. Okay, all of that said, uh, oh, uh, by the way, also one other thing. Um, I didn't mention the app. You can get our application, go to Google Play or iTunes. You can download our app and you can get our podcast and our lectures through that as well. And we also have, of course, our apparel. If you go to the top of the page where it says support and you click on that, you've got an option for shop where you can get all your Abbeville Institute embroidered apparel. So go on out and do that as well. Okay, all that said, time to get into the material for the week. And of course, this week, we had the Independence Day week, Secession Day week, which of course, most Americans don't realize when they're eating hot dogs and watching ball games and eating hamburgers and hanging out with friends, that this is a week dedicated to the principle of independence, or another word for that is secession. The same thing that happened in 1861 that is somehow treason, is not treason in 1776. But most Americans don't put, don't connect the dots. They don't see the correlation between the two. Now, Southerners at the time recognized what they were doing. In fact, it's all over the place. You can go out and look at uh, countless uh, 
artifacts from the period, whether it's letters, uh, whether it's poetry, prose, and people were talking about the connection between 1776 and 1861, it's all over the place. In fact, even James McPherson in his uh, For Cause and Comrades uh, wrote about this and how Northerners thought they were doing the same thing. They believed they were fighting for the founding generation as well, but in a different way because they were, believed they were fighting for the union that the founders created. Uh, for us, and, and not fighting against slavery, by the way. You could find very few Union soldiers who would say anything about slavery till about 1863. And even then, after the Emancipation Proclamation, many deserted and left the army because they didn't want to be part of it. Uh, but uh, Southerners from the beginning said, hey, we're fighting for the same things that our forefathers are fighting for. Our, and, our ancestors were fighting for in 1776. It was all over the place. And that's something that we need to do a better job of, connecting the dots there between the two things. And I know, I, of course, I see on social media people do it. Well, you know, uh, and of course, people in, in, in our circle of, of, uh, of friends and colleagues and fellow thinking scholars, they talk about it all the time. But to the public at large, this is something that needs to happen. The dots need to be connected. And if you do that, the real distortion, of course, is Abraham Lincoln in 1863, 1863 when he gives the Gettysburg Address in November of 1863, and he says that, uh, you know, they're fighting for the principles of the Declaration, the Union was, and for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, which we all knew was wrong. I mean, even newspapers at the time pointed this out and said, this is a silly speech. Silly, they use, actually use that term, silly. Uh, two minutes. But that two-minute speech changed forever the way that Americans have, have thought about the Declaration and thought about independence and thought about that particular war for the for the incorrectly. I mean, this, this is how it happened. It's, it's for the bad, you know, that this, this happened this way. Uh, and this is something, again, that if we can, can get people to understand how 1776 and 1861 are related, I think you start moving the needle in our direction. Because if people realize that, now, of course, the, those that uh, have the view that, well, in 1776 it was the same as 1861, a bunch of old dead white guys, slaveholders were out there uh, just trying to uh, not pay taxes. Uh, well, then you're never going to persuade those people. But most Americans don't think that. They, they think highly of the founding generation, uh, even though it's becoming politically incorrect to do so. They think highly of the founding generation. And uh, even though, that oh, they're flawed people. But they do believe in the principle of independence. And so if you, can, if you can get them to understand that, 1861 is no different. You're, you're, moving, you're, you're moving them in, a, in the right direction. So on Monday, we ran a piece by yours truly about Richard Henry Lee. And that's the other thing about Southern history. It's not just four years. And we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. You know, Southern history is not 1861 to 1865 or 1860 to 1865. Southern history is 1607 to the present. And we need to understand that there are many great Southern leaders and a lot of rich history here to talk about. I mean, the South has a rich culture and a rich uh, tradition. And that's one thing we're trying to do at the Institute, to, to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Not all of the tradition is valuable for the modern era. It's not. I mean, no tradition has that. But what is true about the Southern tradition and then what is valuable about the Southern tradition? And if you look at Richard Henry Lee you'll find what he was doing 
in June of 1776 is both true and valuable. Richard Henry Lee is one of these forgotten members of the founding generation, but he was the individual who presented the resolution to declare independence. Now, after he did it, he went back to Virginia and worked on Virginia independence because that was more important than a collective declaration. Jefferson actually didn't like the fact that he was stuck in Philadelphia writing a declaration. He should have been in Virginia, he thought, looking to lead his country out of the Union, which was, or out of this, you know, British Empire, the, the, uh, the British Union. He should have been back there doing that instead of writing some silly declaration uh, because every state was going to do this anyways. Uh, in fact, um, Pauline Myers, uh, American Scripture, uh, gets into this, uh, that there were many local and state declarations. Uh, so we have the declaration, and then we have all the other declarations, which in many ways were more detailed and a little more fiery. You know, the, the, the Declaration of Independence was watered down. It had a lot of hands in it. But Lee's resolution, which essentially is the last paragraph of the Declaration, was the thing that set everything in motion. And Lee, of course, from the very famous Lee family of Virginia. Uh, his brother was Robert E. Lee's father. So this is an important part of Southern history to understand that Virginians were leading the way in independence. Everyone focuses on Massachusetts, and people think Massachusetts and Boston, this is, this is uh, patriot country, right? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. The South was just as much patriot country as the North, maybe if not more so, because in some ways the South had more to lose. Uh, when you look at what the British were doing in the South, um, one thing was, you know, and, and thankfully the United States, uh, States United won this war because if they didn't, the British tried to paint this war as a war for slavery. Uh, you look at Lord Dunmore's proclamation and uh, the, the fact that he was, it was an emancipation proclamation in Virginia, and the point was to try to cause slave insurrection. And so Southerners, uh, through trade and other things, were, were very much tied into the British economy. Now, you could say, what about in, in New England where they're all merchants? Oh, I mean, that's true. And, and John Hancock, uh, who was perhaps the wealthiest man in, in uh, the British North American colonies, a good states rights New Englander, uh, did lose a lot of money on the war. I mean, the Baron of Beacon Hill. So you got to admire John Hancock for standing up for independence. But Southerners were, were very much closer to uh, Great Britain and culturally than you can say that the North was, uh, particularly when you got to the 18th century as the uh, Southern colonists were simply trying to recreate British lifestyle. And this is why the British believed that uh, there would be more sympathy to, to their side in the South. And in some ways they may have been correct. Uh, though we do have, you know, just a week ago we had Carolina Day. Uh, which was the day that uh, the Patriots in Charleston repulsed the British invasion there. And it's where we get the Palmetto flag. So a great day in, South, in Southern history, South Carolina history, and of course then leading into the Declaration of Independence, which, again, written by primarily by Jefferson and Richard Henry Lee, the driving force in that uh, statement that they are free and independent states like the state of Great Britain, the most important statement. So people need to know Richard Henry Lee. Uh, there's a recent biography by uh, Unger about uh, about Lee, 
um, which is highly laudatory. It's not bad. Uh, I mean, he, he seeks to, to make Lee a much more important figure in the American founding. Some people have panned it and saying, well, how can you say Richard Henry Lee was just as important as Jefferson and Washington? Because he was. Um, you know, I wrote about Lee in my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers because he was one of the most important members of the founding generation, just as important as John Hancock, just as important as Sam Adams, just as important as a whole host of members of that generation, even Jefferson and Washington, even John Adams. I mean, th these, th these forgotten founders, John Dickinson, another one, Roger Sherman, and these people were very important, some from the North, many from the South, though. And we need to know them. We need to know these Southern founders because connecting, again, connecting the dots to that period in 1861 is essential. And so on. then on the 4th, we ran a piece, The Spirit of 61, which um, does that. And, and Karen Stokes wrote this piece and it uses primary documentation to talk about what was lost in 61, and that was the Federal Republic. And I think that's something else we need to understand. It's language. And the piece that Boyd Cathy wrote this week is about language, but we need to understand language. We can't call the United States a republic. It's not a singular republic. It's a federal republic. That's an important distinction to make. We have free and independent states that bonded together through a compact to form a federal republic. We had a republic of independent federal or independent republics, so it's a federal republic. It's a federation of republics. If we can get that language correct, then we can understand what the union actually is. Still is. I mean, that's not changed. The thing about it, what people don't understand, is the Constitution really hasn't changed. I mean, you can say, well, we got these new amendments. We've got the 13th through 15th Amendment. We've got the 16th through the 19th Amendment. We're creating a much more national government. Now, this is true, but the nature of the Union hasn't changed. The nature of the Union hasn't changed if we follow the same Constitution, which we're supposed to. We're supposed to. Of course, the war did a lot to change our perspective on the Union, but not the nature of the Union. That hasn't changed since 1788 when the Constitution was ratified. Really, since 1776 when Dickinson helped scribble out the Articles of Confederation, and of course by 1781 when that's ultimately ratified. The Union hasn't changed since then. It's the same Union. And so when you look in 61 and what people were saying, you know, if we lose this war, we lose that Union. We lose the Union of the Founders. We're fighting for the principles of 76. We're fighting for the spirit of 76. It's not the spirit of 1861 solely. It's the spirit of 1776. We're fighting for that. We're fighting for independence. There's no way you can't see this, North. Why are you fighting against us? And she does a magnificent job in bringing out some primary documents where people were talking about this. This is the thing. You have to understand the connection if you can't understand the connection, then secession in 1861 becomes treason. And it's not. Secession in 61 wasn't treason any more than secession in 76 was treason. Now, of course, the British would perhaps say it was. Uh, but we know in our principle that it wasn't. Nobody in the founding generation said this was treason. Now, of course, people quipped you know, Ben Franklin quipping that, well, are we either going to you know, hang together or we'll hang separately? Maybe understanding they would be a you know, charge of treason. But in their mind, this wasn't treason because the British, the, the, the parliament itself, the king was committing treason. He was a tyrant. 
for abusing the ancient constitutions, for abusing English liberties, the same thing the South was fighting for in 1861. They believed that the Constitution was being abused, or potentially would be abused, either one, that for years they had suffered under the abuse of the federal government at the expense of the South. And so the long-term secessionists, people like Robert Bonwell Rett, whose declaration of causes mentioned all kinds of things about secession, was much more uh, comprehensive than, say, Memminger's declaration of causes in South Carolina, which did focus almost entirely on slavery. So you have to understand there was multiple views as to what's going on here. There are people in the South talking about secession as early as the 1830s. The secession needed to happen, and it was not over slavery, but over the abuse of the South at the hands of the general government because they were abusing their constituted authority. I mean, look, New Englanders were talking about secession as early as 1794. So this was an American principle. Everyone recognized it as an American thing to do. It's just the South finally had the uh, the backbone to pull it off in 1860-61, whereas the North never did. But it didn't make it any less American. When the North wanted to do it, nobody said this was un-American. In fact, Jefferson said, look, let them be free to talk about the error of their ways, meaning that this is in his inaugural address, his first inaugural. In other words, we're not going to harass these people. If they want to talk about secession, they're wrong to, to pursue this right now. But have at it. Talk about it. It's not illegal. It's not un-American. So that's Jefferson. That's a member of the founding generation. Lincoln's position was not... It, it, the founders would have recognized it as King George III. You have to put these together. You have to connect the dots. So it's important to understand those things as we begin to talk to people about what happened in... 60 and 61 was the same as what happened in 76. But of course, as Boyd Cathy points out in his piece that ran on Thursday, leftist crazies don't want you to exist. They don't, because to them, this is bigger. I mean, to the, to the individuals, there, there are some individuals you can't have a conversation about with this. These are, these are the dyed-in-the-wool uh, Marxists. I mean, they're, they're economic Marxists, they're cultural Marxists. These are people that want to level society with their culture. And they certainly don't want people that believe in American principles to exist. Because to them, uh, the American principle is Lincoln's distortion of the Declaration. I mean, the Gettysburg Address is the turning point in America. Without, without, any, without any question... It is the turning point in American history because from that point, people took that ultimately and ran with it and made it and made America something it never was. It's the heresy of equality, as Mel Bradford pointed out at one point. It's equality with a capital E. The, uh, even Pauline Meyer points out, again, in American scripture, when she says, look, Jefferson himself didn't think this was radical. Nobody thought this was radical. I mean, what they were saying in 76 was certainly a reaffirmation of the American mind. And when, when he wrote... All men are created equal. What he was talking about was equality under the law, something that had been recognized, whether you're a Tory or a patriot, as true. Going back to the Magna Carta, in fact, she begins that book talking about the Magna Carta. That's what the Declaration, this is what equality meant, where, where British citizens 
were equal under the law. It wasn't equal in uh, you know, condition. It wasn't equal with a capital E where everyone's the same. Nobody thought that. And so when Lincoln talked about that in 63, he was changing. As Gary Ellis said, he's revolutionizing the revolution. Horrible. This is a horrible distortion of what America is. And of course, then when you have these leftist crazies and they run around and attack people verbally, like Boyd Cathy is simply going to Raleigh to do some business. He's got a Confederate flag. Uh, he's got an SCV uh, tag. And a woman starts calling him a Nazi and starts dropping F-bombs dropping on him. A 60-year-old woman. Um, because he's got a Confederate flag license plate. Until this is, this is how distorted America has become. Until the last, say, 20 years, uh, this would have been, oh, you've got, oh, yeah, you're an American. You're an American for having that flag on your plate. You're an American for having that flag at your house or uh, in, a, in a patriotic revival. This is all about America. These are American symbols. The Confederate flag was an American symbol. For generations, it was viewed that way. And we've talked about this on this podcast over and over again. This is something that people need to start saying. That's an American flag. When people say the United States flag is the American flag, it's an American flag. But there are many other American flags, including the Confederate battle flag, the Confederate national flags, the first, second, and third national. Those are American flags. All of our state flags are American flags. We don't just have an American flag or the American flag. We have, or a American flag, singular. We have many American flags, and the Confederate flag is just as American as any other symbol. And again, to the, to the men fighting under that flag, it represented 1776. There, were, there was actually a proposal in the South to adopt wholesale the U.S. flag and the United States Constitution, because in their mind, this is what we're fighting for. Those people in the North, they should call themselves the United States of North America. We are the United States of America. Which I think is absolutely hilarious. But this is, this is what people were saying. So when these leftist crazies start dropping F-bombs on you and start saying you're a fascist, you're a Nazi, I mean, this is how ridiculous America has become. And they really don't want us to exist. It's about extermination. You cannot think these things. You can't think that's an American symbol. You can't think that Lincoln was wrong. You can't think that the South was right in seeking independence to some people in American society. And it's only getting worse. I mean, it used to be that you could play Elvis Presley's uh, An American Trilogy uh, at a 4th of July celebration. Now, because it has Dixie in it, you can't play that anymore. I mean, it's, it's, we've, we've become absolutely stupid. There's no other way to describe it. It's just stupidity. And so they want us gone. And in fact, this is the most, as I've said on this podcast before, it's the most evil thing you can do to say that you need to disown your own blood. Your own blood were bad. Disown them. Disown those people. Uh, but that's essentially what's, what's desired in our modern political discourse. You have to disown those people. Now, not everyone thinks that. But I would dare say it's only about 50% now that's hanging on. We are hanging on with a very slim majority at most. 
Uh, but this, I mean, you've done, you've seen polls. There's been polls out. People don't want Confederate statues taken down. They don't want these things gone. What they will do, though, is they'll say, well, we should contextualize those things because they don't understand. They've been, they've been brainwashed over the years. That, oh, well, we have to contextualize them because these things, these people were bad, but we, we should leave them up as history. No, you should leave them up as symbols of American principles, which is independence. <laughs> That's why they should be there. You want to contextualize them, contextualize them with that, saying, look, here we go, here's 1776, 1861. Let's put that poem up there. Sure, let's contextualize. In fact, um, there should be, if you want to contextualize talking about the negative, let's contextualize talking about the positive. Of course, the, the inscriptions on the monuments already say these things. And that's the thing. They already say them. But I digress. It's important to understand these things because if we don't start pushing back in this type of way, we're going to lose. And I, I'm not certain we're going to lose even if we won't lose even if we push back. This is going to be a long war. It's not just uh, an immediate conflict over removing statues or symbols. It certainly is a cultural war. As Boyd Cathy points out, one side must win, one side must lose. This is what Pat Buchanan has said. One side has to lose. And uh, we have far fewer numbers, but the Internet is the great equalizer. And I know people don't believe that, but it is. It is. People find this podcast. They find our website. They find things all the time. And they say, my gosh, it's the light in the darkness. Somebody is walking with me in the wilderness. There's somebody out there like me. There's more than just somebody. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of people like you who just want to know that they're not alone. Because it seems that way if you watch the news. One thing you can do, and this is about independence too, you can individually have your independence. Don't watch the mainstream media. I don't. Every now and then I'll comment on it because it's so ridiculous. I mean, it, you, there's, of course, the very fun, funny website, The Onion, which is all supposed to be parody, but The Onion is becoming real news. So just don't watch it. Ignore them. Ignore them. And then they go away. And they get frustrated by this. This is where, uh, you know, when, when you, the current climate and call these people fake news, and all, this, is where, this, is, this is important because those people are getting frustrated because they know they're being ignored. And when they're being ignored, they get very cranky. Because they want to have that status. It, it's what fuels them. They need to have that, that uh, the accolades thrown on them. They're great. They know everything. And they don't. So ignore them. Declare your own independence. Sweep around your own back porch. Take care of your own finances. Do things that make you independent. And then you're living the spirit of 76 and 61. That is important. It's essential. Now, a couple other pieces for the week, just a little bit of Southern history and culture, and don't want to focus on them too terribly long. On Tuesday, we ran a book review of, of um, the Cherokee Indians, and uh, there, of course, was a pro-Union group of Cherokee, and but most of the Cherokee were pro-Confederate, even in North Carolina. A lot of people don't realize the Cherokee, not all the Cherokee moved out to Oklahoma. They were pro-Confederate Cherokee in North Carolina, um, and they were not slaveholders, um, but certainly you had this, the South is, had, had a very unique situation. I mean, just look at some of the things the South had that the North didn't have. It had a Jewish member of the Confederate cabinet. North didn't have that. In fact, anti-Semitism was rampant in the North. But we had a Jewish member of the Confederate cabinet. We had Jewish Confederates. Uh, Michael Kogan does a great job anytime we have him speak and talking about his, his Jewish Confederate ancestors. 
there's a powerful part when he makes it when he gives a talk and he talks about here's a confederate flag they have there's blood on it from his ancestor a jewish man fighting for the confederacy yeah but of course the confederates are all nazis right i mean this is just silly and uh you've got that of course you know you had um the uh, fact that you had cherokee indians who were supporting the confederacy uh, in fact, not just the Cherokee, but also many of the other five civilized tribes of the Southeast supported the Confederacy. And Albert Pike, Pike's Peak, was in Oklahoma writing treaties with the and, and gave the Confederate, the, the, the uh, Indian tribes had a non-voting position in the Confederate Congress. Now, where can you see that in the United States? So this, this war was more complex than what most mainstream historians will let you know. I mean, they know these things. That's the, that's the sad thing about it. They know these things. They just don't want you, they don't want you to know these things. They know there were free black uh, Southerners who supported the cause. They know these things existed. But they want to try to point, to paint it to where this is, uh, you know, this was the anomaly um, it was so insignificant, and Southerners were still just racist, and they didn't like these. I mean, so they know that there's diversity, quote-unquote diversity, in the South. But they want you to think it was all about the North. So that particular review, uh, book review, which is what it is, um, and the book that's reviewed is entitled The Confederate Cherokees, John uh, Drew's Regiment of Mounted Rifles. It's written by Craig Gaines. It was uh, reprinted in 2017, originally published in the 1990s, but printed again in 2017. And then finally, on Friday, we ran a piece entitled The Ministry of Ordinary Means and the Kentucky Revivals of 1828. This is an interesting topic. We could spend a lot of time talking about Southern religion. Um, and I've always been fascinated by what happens in the South. You know, you have this Orthodox South. The Orthodox churches were the dominant churches in the South in the colonial period, but then you get to the Great Awakenings, and you have the Puritan churches brought to the South. And one thing that's interesting about that, when you look at the, the, the idea of the Puritan church, it is rebellious in that it's rejecting orthodoxy, uh, the traditions of the, of, the, of the church itself, whether it was the Catholic church or the, Ang the Anglican church or the Eastern Orthodox church, it's a rejection of orthodoxy. But... It also is orthodox in its rigid uh, literalism of the Bible. It, it's, it, so it's orthodox that way. So it's, it's rejection of orthodoxy in, in the church itself, but then this rigid orthodoxy of the Bible, the literal interpretation of the scriptures. Um, and when you look at the history of, of the Puritan church, the Puritans were the, the most ardent pro-slavery ideologues in America. Um, they were the ones that had a pro-slavery ideology. And so as, as the Puritan church comes to the South, the Great Awakenings, that's when you start seeing pro-slavery ideology come to the South. It wasn't until about the 1830s. That, I mean, Southerners didn't think about these things. It was just the way it was. In fact, what you had in the South more than anything else were those who were talking about anti-slavery positions. It wasn't until you get to the 1830s that you really start to see a pro-slavery ideology codified in the South, and that was because of the Great Awakenings. And if you ask Southerners in 1661, you know, why do you defend slavery? Because we're told to do so at church. If you didn't have these Puritan churches coming to the South, you may not have had this rigid defense, this pro-slavery defense that became so important 
moving forward by the 40s and the 50s in the South, it was built on these great awakenings. And that rebellious spirit of the Protestant, uh, the Puritan Protestant movement. Um, so I find this part fascinating. And, and Southerners on the frontier in particular rejected organized churches, though they were really interested in religion. They didn't like the organized church. And uh, David Hackett Fitcher does a very good job of this in his Albion Seed and pointing out, you know, Celts in particular didn't care for the organized church, but they were really interested in religion. So these, this great awakening, these tent meetings and tent revivals and all this kind of stuff that went on in the South uh, and the frontier, very important in creating religiousness in the South. Um, in an interpretation of the South. You know, and of course, the Baptists and Methodist churches are going to become the two dominant churches in the South. Those are Puritan Protestant churches. They came out of the North. Whereas early on in the South, it was the Anglican Church. Not the Puritan Anglican Church, the, the Orthodox Anglican Church. Uh, which is essentially the Catholic Church with slight changes to theology and dogma. But... Um, it's important to understand this part of Southern history. And, and I, we, again, we could do a whole podcast just on Southern religion, a whole episode. Um, but I think Forrest Marion does a nice job here in giving out some, some history of these, of in Kentucky, what's going on uh, with these revivals in the 1820s and how that's going to impact the region. Um, very interesting part of, of Southern history. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Week in Review in the Abbeville Institute at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time. Good day.